0: Laying down track in the hole, got a back like an iron wood, bent by the wind. Blood veins blue as the cold. blood veins blue as a cold.
1: Support for WERU
2: comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987 bringing the coast as close as the mailbox on the web at mainboats.com Hey, do you want to groove to some great laid-back, bluesy and soulful jazz on a Tuesday night? And join me June for Jazz Alchemy, 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. I mix it up, but always try to spin some truly deep-felt,
0: inspiring jazz to further you on your journey and delve deeper into your passion for jazz for the great American art music. Keep 89.9 and
2: 99.9 set on your FM dial and share some great jazz together with me on Jazz Alchemy, the magic mix of jazz. And I hope to catch you next time every Tuesday, 6 to 8 p.m. here on WERU Community Radio. ¶¶
1: Boat Talk is brought to you in part by Captain Yeo's Flaming Fish Performance Models, handmade miniature wooden sailing vessels, on the web at flamingfish.net, little ships for big kids. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Front Street Shipyard, a midcoast coast main boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast, Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at FrontStreetShipyard.com or 930-3740. It's 10 o'clock, and you're listening to WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9
3: in Bangor, streaming on the web at WERU.org. We are a voice of many voices. We're volunteer-powered, and we're listener-supported. It's time for Boat
2: Talk. Andy, while we're talking about uh, any of this other stuff too, you know, consider yourself co-host as much as a guest. You got something? You got and guess something what? To say, You're you know. on the air too.
4: So let's go to boat talk right now. Now.
3: <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. We're here. We're definitely here. Time for boat talk here on commercial community radio, W E R U F M Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. Boat talk's call-in radio show for people contemplating things naval. With your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, um, usually has a pun in the beginning. We're going to forego the pun today because we have a little
2: bad news. Got a bunch of bad news.
3: Yeah. Um, first one is uh, our good friend Michael War, who has been on this show a few times and is a frequent
2: caller or inner. Usual suspect. Uh, usual also, sus- uh, people will know him around here as a, a longtime usual contributor to the soapbox. Um Pretty uh, intelligent fella, boat builder, down to Little Deer Isle for years. And, uh mutually exclusive. Well, uh, good point. Uh, anyway.
3: Anyway, uh, yes, Michael, uh, I'm afraid, died a couple of months ago, so we're going to uh, dedicate this show to, to the memory of Michael War.
2: Passed away of cancer, we understand, yep. yeah. And uh, hadn't heard from him for a while, and we are kind of wondering, so we kind of reached out, and that's the news that come back. Um, Also, in the uh, uh, boat community today, the whole state of Maine, uh, uh, pretty sad about this, Lorraine Hamilton has passed away, and Lorraine is Wayne's wife of Hamilton Marine. Hamilton Marine. Yeah, and uh, she caught a brain tumor and and went down kind of fast and hard. Um, Wayne Hamilton started that Hamilton Marine empire, I guess we call it now, out of his garage in Searsport, Maine. He couldn't have done that without the wife, you know, literally. And
3: uh, Well, maybe the wife made him move to the garage. <laughs> well,
2: and, uh, you know, that story has uh, worked out great, but, uh, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. we, um, uh, sad to say, the passing of Lorraine Hamilton on Thursday. Um, so that's how we're starting off this morning. How about that?
3: Um, well, I got a little bit better news. Um, for folks who don't know about working waterfront or real fine, uh, weekly magazine that comes out of Rockland here, put out by the Island Institute, there's a very uh, informative and interesting article by Tom Groning in the most recent Working Waterfront on ocean acidification and uh, how it's becoming a problem and what we need to do to, um, I don't know if we can stop it, but at least what we can do to to uh, mitigate some of the problems that our ocean acidification are One heading of the- towards...
2: Yeah, more one more. of the many ongoing uh, subjects of interest around boat talk. Yeah. Um, so
3: anyway, you can go to Working Waterfront, um, I believe it's dot com. Just just Google Working Waterfront, and then that magazine will will pop up, and you can check out the ocean ocean acidification article by Tom Groening.
2: Now, before we go on to more dead things, uh, big <laughs> stinky dead things. Uh, now we we uh, would like to welcome Andy Mays is in this morning as. Uh, Guest hosts, I guess we were giving him instructions earlier. Say good morning, Andy. Good
5: morning, Mike. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, yeah. everybody. Hi, Andy.
2: Yeah, Andy's a fisherman out of Southwest Harbor and uh, got a call from another fisherman in distress a little while ago, and we'll tell that story in, in uh, just a little bit you want to stay tuned for that. But a couple other things in the uh, Clippins file first. The uh, one that leaps out uh, to beginning is uh, whale washes ashore on Little Cranberry Island. And our Boat Talk buddy, Bruce Fernald, was out walking on on uh, Christmas Day, and they come down the beach, and here's a big humpback whale sitting on the beach. And uh, this whale is um, uh, 35 foot. It is uh, near the old Coast Guard station at the eastern tip of Little Cranberry Island. Last week, uh, Allied Waste, Allied Whale Stranding Response Coordinator Rosemary uh, Seton identified the animal as a 7-year-old adult. Known as Triumph, who was born in 2008 off the Dominican Republic to uh, a whale named Spar. And uh, we don't know how he came to grief and ended up on Little Cranberry Island, but um, read something in a book the other day. And this book is about shipping. And uh, it's called 90% of Everything, which is the uh, subtitle of Everything, basically uh, comes by ship. Uh, the lady's name is Rose George. It's, uh, Pretty good uh, uh, account of her taking a shipping uh, container uh, trip from England over to uh, Singapore and back, sort of thing. And she does a lot of asides. and one of her sides is about whales. And uh, there are apparently three way uh, three ways to deal with a stranded whale. It's going to decompose. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the that's the end. State. They are
3: biodegradable. Yes,
2: and that's what's going to happen. But the big and stinky. So if you can let it sit. Let it sit. That's one way to deal with them. If you can get a bulldozer or a backhoe to the whale, you can dig a big hole on the beach and you can bury her. And, uh, Does
5: EPA c- allow backhoes and bulldozers on beaches?
3: It can be
2: a problem. It can be an issue, yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that can be a problem for location and uh, other issues. And, again, you've cut down the smell a little bit, but now you've got a big stinky, uh, you know, that's, that's going to come back to bite I, you. I,
5: I wondered, uh, is that – what happened to the whale? Has it gone off with the tide? Has the tide been big enough to take it off? Or is it still out right. on? Crimp? I believe it's still out
2: there. It's still oh, out I got to take the, the
5: kids out there for that. Yeah. yeah.
2: So anyway, from ninety um, percent uh, of everything by Rose George. This is uh, talking about the uh, uh, the headaches that authorities charged with disposing of these carcasses, and the most notorious. This is the third way that you get rid of a whale, and. Uh, it's been well-tried, and it's still tried around the There's world. There is a fourth way, too, I'll get Well, the third way, I, I'm recommending for the people <laughs> out to Cranberry Island, right after Andy uh, takes kids <laughs> out there. Uh, the most notorious whale disposal incident occurred in 1970 when the Oregon State Highway Division was tasked with destroying a 45-foot sperm whale that had arrived on the beach in Florence, Oregon. Perhaps because of their experience with moving large boulders, highway official, officials decided to use dynamite, and a crowd gathered... The charges were blown, and then everyone ran as giant chunks of blubber rained from the sky and crushed an Oldsmobile 88 with uh, Walter Umenhofer in it, who uh, then became known forever to his great regret as the blubber victim. The blubber. You know, and dynamite, that's the other way you yeah. deal with these. I've read,
5: I've read the first-hand account of that before, and it, yeah. it, it sounds like a great idea, dynamite, <laughs> and, but it draws a big crowd, and that's what it It wasn't just blubber. It was yeah. rotting. Blubber. Yeah. Yep. They talk about the smell being just just horrendous, with stuff raining from the sky, whale chunks raining from the sky.
2: They uh, suggest a website here, Snopes.com, Snopes. dot com. S n o p e s. Snopes. dot com. Uh, who knows? I haven't gone there. Could be video. So raining blubber. Um, and again, the idea is to get the whale into littler pieces that rot faster. But you know. Uh, so anyway, that's a. Uh, out to Little Cranberry. Good luck, Bruce. Bruce, um, we interviewed Bruce on Boat Talk years ago. I think uh, that was after he had helped rescue Jack Merrill, I think. Uh, Jack Merrill's lobster boat caught Burn. on fire. Yep. And I think Bruce rescued him, so we talked to him about that. I interviewed Bruce, and his father had just died. Well-known, long-time lobsterman out to Little Cranberry. And I wanted to get him to say something about his dad. So per- perfect straight man line. I says, uh, Bruce, how- how'd you learn to be a lobsterman? He paused for me and he says, well, I don't know as I've learned yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have a
3: phone call already, so let's let's uh, jump over and go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk.
4: Hi. It's Gray from Hancock. Hi, Gray. I'd like to talk about the, uh, the stinky uh, Raining blubber? Mm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if any of you have just, uh, there's a book, uh, I can't remember the name of the book. It's by uh, Gerald Durrell. He's an Englishman and he he had a weird family his best book is my family and other animals which everyone should read but uh in this book his family is picnicking on a beach picnicking on a beach in wales i believe and they they have a nice picnic on this nice big rock and about halfway through the picnic they they notice that the rock isn't actually very hard it's kind of soft and uh (laughs) <laughs> At some point, they realized realize that there's also a smell around, mm-hmm. and, and they have discovered they've been uh, dining on top of a dead whale half on the beach oil. that's half buried in the sand, and, and they thought it was a rock. Anyway, I just thought that would be an amusing story instead of a horrendous disposal problem to deal with. Anyway, thanks for the show. Thank you, Greg.
2: Turn it into a tourist attraction, I'll call it. It's kind of the wrong season.
3: uh, I talked with Sean Todd, who uh, is the director of Allied Whale, about the whale on Cranberry Island. And they have offered, Allied Whale has offered their services to go out and uh, cut up that whale and... uh, probably reassemble it and out there and use it as a, uh, a tourist attraction to come see the, the whale that died on the beach, the, the bones anyway. They want
2: the skeleton. Yeah, the yeah. skeleton. Yeah.
3: And there is the fourth way that I mentioned, too, of getting rid of a whale is um, you can hook a boat to it and haul it out to water and, and just let, hopefully it'll uh, get eaten or just go away by itself, uh, although there now there are uh, federal... Uh, permitting problems with doing that very easily so
2: sounds easy and we'll get to the difficulties of towing things with boats today which is uh not hmm. as easy as most people would would uh, just guess you know uh, yeah. uh note here that snopes.com is a true or false uh, website so anyway you can check that out at, at uh your discretion uh we're doing boat talk this morning alan sprague and mike joyce uh long hosts um uh, and andy may is in for a guest this morning andy Uh, Helped out another fisherman in peril off of uh, Southwest Harbor a little bit, and a couple of our uh, clippings this week are other people in peril on the water. Here's a wonderful story, uh, a diver story too, Andy, something of a diver as well. Um, Two fellas down near Cutler, um, uh, Washington County, in the mouth of the uh, little uh, Machias uh, Bay, and they had a 25-foot inboard uh, skiff. And the uh, boat was swamped by a wave. Two of them went into the water. One of them was a diver wearing a dry suit. The other was not wearing a dry suit. And uh, so they swam to a ledge, and um, the diver uh, buried his friend in wet seaweed to keep him out of the cold wind.
5: Ah, good thinking.
2: Yeah, kind of counterintuitive.
5: I I saw that, but I didn't. I saw that two guys you know swamped their boat. I didn't. I figured it. Um, was something to that effect but uh, that was good thinking on his part i didn't know the details of it
2: yeah the uh, marine patrol uh, arrived at about two o'clock and and the coast guard and, and got him off there there were five to seven foot seas um wasn't a nice day at all as as it will be when these things happen and buried the fella in wet seaweed to keep him warm
5: I wonder if he thought of that on the if he you know if that, if he thought of that on the spot or if that was something that uh, you know he'd prepared for, thought about, or came up with before. Yeah, I, I've never
3: heard of it before,
5: but like you say, it's,
3: well, because I, to I work. do
5: remember that that was it was a brutally cold day. Yeah. So you know you figure a guy's wet. Um, yeah. Anything anything that could help.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty damn smart. We're just talking to uh, Rich Hillsinger this morning. Rich will be doing the uh, music program next on the wing. He's also the director of the Wooden Boat School and uh, told us about a. Rescue he and his son did off of uh, the wooden boat harbor this uh, fall in high winds, rescued a capsized sailboat. Now, they were lucky because the people at wooden boat school are safety oriented. They practice, they have gear. Okay? Um, most people don't think of these things, and you never expect to be in the water. Um, here's one in the news from, from just today a uh, former Miami f- uh, Dolphin football player was nine miles out in his 36 foot powerboat fishing by himself off of uh, 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 Florida.
5: I wouldn't hold that against him. That's normal activity.
2: Well, he got a fish on. He went to the back of the boat to fight it, and all of a sudden he's in the water. The boat is on autopilot and headed toward the Bahamas without him. He's nine miles offshore, and uh, he started swimming. He swam for 16 hours. He swam 27 miles. He came ashore quite a bit north of where he started. Current, of course, was quite a factor. It was blowing 25 knots while he was doing this. Good sea running. How does he even know which way to go? Okay. He should have died of hypothermia. Um, if your body gets down below 95 degrees, you're pretty much screwed. And even in very warm water, uh, which he was in, it's still colder than 95 degrees. So Big
5: guy helps yeah big One guy big but also will to live helps too yeah. i read a, uh, there's a lot of stories of uh world war ii airmen flying back from bombing missions and and, and strafing missions and crossing back over the north sea and the english channel that went in in the drink as my uncle and his uh crew did and died and uh, there's some really uh, crazy ones where where a man lived, you know, 24 hours in 34-degree waters, and everybody else died of hypothermia, and it usually comes down to the will to live.
2: Will to live has a lot to do about it. Just read a um, really excellent novel, um, you know, but it it talks a lot about hypothermia. Um, It's called North of Boston. The uh, author is Elizabeth Elo, E-L-O, and uh, the book starts with a lobster boat being run over uh, in the fog north of Boston, and, and the girl goes in the water and she survives so the navy does uh, hypothermia testing on her and she ends up in labrador saving narwhals and it's a really excellent book north of boston but uh some people's physiology is uh For sort sure. of a mystery and some people survive when other people die they uh talk about an instance of um, a squad of of uh, recon marines in training exercise trying to swim across the river um all but one of them died they were supervised, they were highly fit, but they went into that cold water and, and uh, all went into shock and died. You know, uh, your core temperature goes down, you're screwed. So anyway, um, there's a another couple of, uh, uh, this is a great picture from the Rockland Courier Gazette here of a uh, barge truck, the Island Transporter, was headed over towards uh, North Haven. This was middle of December. And uh, got out into some big waves, again, blowing in the mid-20s. Had a cement truck on board. The cement truck tipped up on its side, and then the boat tipped up on its side, and they thought they were all going down. Um, The Vinyl Haven Ferry came to them and uh, made a lee for them, blocked the wind and the waves with the ferry. People on the ferry were taking water in the face on on the deck of the ferry and looking at that... um, boat with the uh, cement truck on its side and saying they've no way they're going to make it there
5: i saw that picture uh, yeah. I, I it was where that i didn't know that's how that happened i did i i read that when it happened they continued on to wherever where wherever they were headed they continued on i thought Ease. but then again you get in certain circumstances where it's too dangerous to turn you know can't you, turn you can't around. turn around
2: can't turn around yeah so, so but i didn't
5: realize the ferry had offered them some
2: protection yeah. and the picture of the boat on its side here again a pretty good chance it could have capsized and sank uh, a salmon salmon uh, uh feed barge uh, did that off of uh, mdi last, yep. uh, last year TV. yeah friend cody c and uh, Boat shifted and she went over. Now uh, they took the boat over to North Haven, leaned her up against the, the uh, pier, and they got the crane from the boatyard, straightened that cement truck up, and everybody was fine, you know. But it just shows you, um, even on a good day, uh, you can get it handed to you. So um, that's what we're talking about this morning, and we are doing boat talk. The telephone number here: one eight six six
3: six two five nine three seven
2: eight is the number. And we got Andy Mays in here this morning. Andy's a, uh, a fisherman. Uh, have a uh, lobster boat called Lost Airman out of Southwest Harbor. Andy, we like to ask people. We will call it the boat talk question. Um, what happened to you when you were young? You ended up having to be a fisherman.
5: My father, um, in Point Pleasant, New Jersey, where I was, you know, where I was born, and then, but when I was six or six, five, six I moved to Vermont. Um, he had the boat building bug and he still builds boats and he built a catamaran in the basement of our house. A good, to me, it seemed at the time really big. It was probably the pontoons were probably 23, 24 feet. It took up the whole, the whole house. And I don't know if they miscalculated, but they ended up having to cut the side of the bottom of the house out (laughs) in order to get it out. And so, so uh, my dad, um, (laughs) Started that, and so when I was, and then I, I we got a ho we had a Hobie Cat, and, and so we sailed the Hobie Cat in Lake Champlain, and sometimes we got out too far, and spent a lot of time with the Hobie Cat upside down, trying to get it righted so that's that's where they I started. don't go very well upside down do they they yeah. do they do not stable
2: right side <laughs> up and upside down nothing in between uh, dad obviously um, a multi-haul man he he's obviously a uh non-conventional thinker too
5: yeah at the time i mean yeah. that was in the 70 you know late 60s early 70s when he was doing that and so he so we left and left the whole left the left the that hall his home you know his homemade sailboat behind and um so uh, and then after high school in high school, I don't know what I, I wanted to do, I, except I like to work, so I did that a lot, and uh, uh, I w- was thinking about going to the Army, and my dad had been in the Army, and he said, you should go in the Coast Guard, and so I, I uh, went in the Coast Guard, and so I had some more experience there, and then I got out in the Coast Guard in Southwest Harbor, and and then I uh, started lobster fishing from there. Scallop, actually, scallop diving is what got me into lobster fishing.
2: An escape coasty—that's interesting. I—I I, um, oh, you didn't know that? No, I—I I, uh, tease summer people sometimes that don't go home like they're supposed to. Escape summer person <laughs> didn't, didn't know you're not supposed to live here your whole life. You know, escape coasty. Never run into one of those. Oh,
5: there's lots of them. You, know, yeah. you run into lots of them at the mm-hmm. boatyards. Come on,
2: any excuse to get down here and see the way life's supposed to be. Yeah. Um, Andy, you're a diver too. Why you took up diving? Let's talk about that.
5: Um, when I was getting out of the Coast Guard in ni- in ninety. Uh, I, I, I just always wanted to scuba dive, and uh, so I went and got certified. And at the time, uh, to, to begin the certification process, the first thing you do is a swim test in the pool. And you would be surprised at the number of people who jump into a pool who can't swim, but aren't concerned about that because they have air. Right. No, and, yeah. so and it was it was it was funny. But at that time, uh, scallop diving was a big booming fishery, yep. and so uh, everybody was trying to become a scallop diver, and I was in the pool with uh, doing the swim test, and one of the things, you had to tread water for five minutes with your hands up in the air, out of the water, and uh, and so to pass that time, they asked everybody what they were there for, and, and I know there were probably... 13 or 14 of us in the pool and they went around and everybody said i'm going to be a scallop diver i'm going to be a scallop diver and, and, I, and I, they got to me and i said no, i just want to be a recreational diver and i looked at the rest of the students and i said these guys are all slightly askew why would you know that that's that, that's why would you be a scallop diver at the time there was a lot of people doing it and there were accidents and people were dying um
2: other people were cashing checks with hundreds and hundreds of dollars. No, they, they
5: didn't have checks at that time. Right, like but in ninety-one, were, it was. They were putting cash. money in
2: their pocket that they couldn't earn in yes. any other an amount that they couldn't earn in any other way. So yes, yeah.
5: so that's I had no intention underwater.
2: Of be, hey, let's go. I know. had
5: no intention of being a scallop diver. I just wanted to do it purely for recreational purposes. But uh, Chris Eaton, who was uh, owned the dive shop at the time, took shine to me, and um, so I uh, I went to work for him. And uh, when I get out, and he and he and I and uh, diver Ed Eddie Monet, we started his uh, his business, his underwater sightseeing business with a camera tethered with the people on the boat who could see the yeah under, you know see what was going on in the water. And then we were scalloping together, and scalloping was really prosperous. And then, so I eventually got my own boat, and then uh, through a, t- a uh, tender I had scallop diving. <clears throat> wanted to go lobstering, and he had a lobster license, and so I thought. Why not? I mean, really, it was work city all winter scalloping, and then summer, you know, I just wanted to find something to fulfill my time, so I thought, oh, sure, let's do this lobstering thing, and then the, that was 20 years ago, and the uh, scallop fishery dived, collapsed, and the lobster fishery took off, and so now I lobster to pay for my scallop diving habit.
2: Mm-hmm. Did you uh, dive urchins anywhere in there, I too, used, Andy? I, I did, yeah. Another big fishery in the. Came on, I a did, big and boom. my,
5: my, uh, probably my. Well, I don't regret it, but at the time I was doing arch, and it was really, it was a dicey fishery where there was uh, always stories of big money, and and you, you, you we would go out and get you know, 20 trays of urchins, and then you send them on the truck, and they'd hear all kinds of promises, and then you'd get a $120 check, and they'd say, well, you know, they weren't that good, and there was a lot of scamming involved in it, and and then they limited the license, and I could have gotten one, but I, I didn't, because I thought, you know, if scalloping is where the money is. This urchin business is, you know, is, is for people that... Aren't skilled enough to dive for scallops, and uh, and and it's a you know it's all it's ne'er duels and criminals running the buying aspect of it, and so I didn't bother and I didn't look back, and it probably cost me a million dollars. There was a, there were some years in the early nineties, you know, where people
2: made a lot of money. Is anybody diving urchins nowadays? Yep, a little but bit, right? Yep, a little bit. Um, why is it not bigger? Uh, Again, I, I run into a fisherman a uh, long, long time ago. He says, he says, you think my job is catching these things? He says, my job is selling them. You know, you've got to have a market.
5: The urchin, there's plenty of market now, um, and the price is really high. I was just talking to a friend who, uh, who, who was, you know, was fishing, but he's, not, he's from Trenton, but he's fishing down in Cutler, and, uh, where there's you know, a little bit better product down there. And he said they were getting you know, 3 or 4 bucks a pound, which made the, you know, the number of trays um, worthwhile. So, but it's not, it's no, it's, it's, when I started in 90, it was, or 91 at Duck Island, uh, along the shores of the whole, the urchins were 12 inches thick everywhere in these canyons. They're just, it was unreal. And, and fishing lobster traps along the shores of islands and stuff was a, you know, was a, a chore because you're always dumping urchins out of them and you're getting them, yeah. stabbing them in your hands. And so nobody, who was lobster fishing, looked at the demise of the urchin, you know, the depletion of the urchin fishery with any. Nobody shed any tears for the, mm. you know, mm.
3: for that. Now, when, you, um, when you're when you scalloping, you personally scallop for more than just the mussels, right? You uh, do some scientific scallop work, too. Uh, I
5: yep, I have. I've been involved in a little bit of that. Mm.
3: There's a good story.
5: There is. Colbert Report. Um, that was funny. That was all it was was... Uh, there's there's always you know scientists piggybacking on on, uh, on commercial fishermen yeah. right yeah. and and sometimes it's to our benefit they always tell us it's to our benefit it's not necessarily always to our benefit but but I do a lot with um with the DMR um collecting specimens for the for the oceanarium uh, the the main state aquarium down in damascata for MDI aquarium uh, oceanarium in in bar harbor and so i pick i do a lot of collections so occasionally for woods Hole oceanographic institute you,
3: you collect more than just the muscle meat then. yes yeah, so
5: i was collecting what was i doing i was collecting scallops. Uh, oh, how much time do we have uh, <laughs> i was helping a grad student yes. she was doing uh you know her interest her whatever her study was it was different than what my what, what i was doing it for but um i was collecting scallops during the summer which is a closed time Long season um so i was collecting scallops i think i want to say it was like 20 every week or every two weeks depending on if i could you know i was trying to do it every week but it was a, you know it's a big chore uh, even with scallops close by having you know, i've got plenty to do but i was collecting scallops dissecting them uh weighing all the parts so i'd collect this I had to collect 10 males and 10 females um and actually it was 20 weigh them all you could tell a male from a female in the water uh you you can't in the water, but you know I just i would pick up say sixty okay. and then I would pick each one up on the boat and I'd look in as they opened up and and I could tell whether they if their gonad was orange or then it was a female, and if it was cream color then it was a male, so mm-hmm. that's how I knew that and and I would uh take those back to the house, weigh them whole, measure the the shell length, and then take all the soft tissue out of them uh weigh that, and then I would put the gonad the reproductive organ, um, in, in, uh, formaldehyde formulin for, for the grad student to examine under the microscope later on. So I had preserved all these things and the, 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 the side note, the good, the benefit to me, which seems like a good idea, but is that, you know, I get to keep the scallop meat. So I had scallops in, in the summertime and I was, uh, doing it out of Dysart's Great Harbor Marina Mm. and, uh, um, so, uh, I, I I had I I got all these scallops. some collected them over the summer, and then I'm trying to think of how the story goes. But uh, I was supposed to meet the grad student. You had a
3: bucket a five did. gallon bucket full. Of I these had actually I had a a, a tote
5: <laughs> and a bucket with the form with the formaldehyde. I had a, a bunch of stuff, and uh, in my days usually I always I'm not organized. Um, but I'm flexible, so that makes it so. If you call me at any time, of the day or night, I can come out and tow you. But uh, mm. you know, so if, if you're a person who says Andy can, you know, Andy, Andy's a guy, call him, he'll do it. I will, but I'll drop everything. So you may be the guy who's waiting for me because I said I'd do something for you. You know, so you know, you have to. That's that's just part of the deal. But uh, so I I I was running around trying to get these this these 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 uh, specimens to the grad student on the island, and she'd come up from Damascott. And I saw a University of Maine, I told her I was going to meet her at Sonsville One Stop, and I saw a, a U- University of Maine car, you know, that had the motor pool license plates on. And so I slung them in the back there, and I went across the street to uh, my son's speech therapy. And and then I was looking out the window, and then I saw my friend and grad student, um standing in the parking lot so I went out and talked to her and I said she said did you bring the scallops and I said well yeah I put them in your car because I'd seen her drive those you know that's like a generic blue Chevy company or something car, right yeah. company car and uh, she looked at me she says well I, I saw you and I didn't uh, you know where'd you put them I said behind the driver's seat and uh, she said well they're not there and I thought I looked across the street to like where, like we both looked across the street to where that car was, and it was gone. It was almost like you could see it traveling through time away. You know, like if you just reach out and grab it, mm-hmm. and uh, that put a hunt on for the, the missing scallop guts because it was all her, what she needed for her research and her you know thesis paper and everything like that. So um, it made the Bangor Daily News. My yeah. wife put it on Facebook trying to find them, and that it took off. Is that how it worked? Yes, yeah, she yeah. put it on Facebook. Uh, on, you know, on, I think on a Bar and swap. says I
3: uh, got this strange uh, stuff in the back of my car, and yeah. I don't know how it got it here. It went around <laughs> and around,
5: and, uh, and it it took off, and uh, and then the Bangor News picked it up. And uh, they did a human interest story on it, and then it didn't take very long. And the Colbert Report called us, and <laughs> and uh, so they came up and did a segment on it. it was in Mar- I think it was March six two years ago. But if you t- if you look up, uh, all you have to do is type in Colbert Report and scallop guts. Before you even finish typing scallop, it'll come up with a link to it. It's it's really <laughs> funny. They did a good job with it
2: never know did these things smell while they were in the back seat of the car no cuz no. they're, they're they're in uh, you know that's what everybody well th- think out. oh
5: it's a stink you know it's like guts yeah. you know but no they weren't they were all preserved in <laughs> formaldehyde <laughs> hmm.
2: oh we have Andy Mays in this morning on boat talk and uh, uh fisherman we can tell fishing stories all day but uh you know we'll get to the business at hand here now um you got a call from a friend of yours uh a few Speaking of dropping everything, yeah,
5: I did. I was coming back from uh, my boys' basketball game in Bar Harbor, and uh, a friend of mine, Ronnie Mazzetti, uh, he he sent me a text. He didn't call me because I didn't I didn't have enough self service. He just said, uh, "I can you tow me? Give me a tow," and and I said, "Sure." He had been having some problems with fuel um, and fuel filters, and I, I've had those. Every pretty much everybody's had those Alcohol. problems before, and they, yeah. and it's just a. No, is a different problem.
2: <laughs> now, Ronnie, let's let's uh, get this uh, just all in context too. Ronnie's a young fella.
5: Ronnie is. He's a hard charger. He was a future yeah. highliner.
2: But he's starting out and he's working his ass off. He's got an old wooden Jones Porter, nope, doesn't nope, he? No, nope, no. Nope. He's
5: got it's a it's a he he's it's a it's a fiberglass one. It's 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 used, but he's using it hard. Yeah. And uh, it's you know a thirty-five foot boat. It's in it's in good shape. He's put a lot of work into it, but it is a fiberglass boat.
2: But anyway, here's the point. Ronnie's a young fella, and uh, you can't be a fisherman um, and work the area without having allies. That
5: is true. Um, fishermen, by and large, don't don't even consider the Coast Guard. They certainly don't depend on them for a couple of reasons. One, it, there's the there's a, not. It's not a stereo. It's not a stigma. But when we get boarded by Coast Guard crews and i used to be one one of them and i could never understand why the guys well the, the boys whose fathers the boys fathers who i uh, coached in little league would you know give me grief all the time about being a seaweed picker and all mm. that stuff and and then when i got out of the coast guard i wasn't out of the coast guard six months when i had my first bad experience and it's usually you know young guys who are 21 22 and they think they know everything and they're uh they're not necessarily condescending but they don't know how much they don't know and it's a pain in the in the butt to deal with them when they come aboard your boat and they're looking for fire extinguishers and they they're staring right at a fixed fi- uh, you know at a fixed agent system on your in your engine room and they don't know that it's a you know mm-hmm. so there's just and and so they're young, um, and 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 uh, and they, they 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 slow you down waste your time, and so and and then the other part is is you know we're we're often out away from them they're not right next door so it takes them time to deal with it like like in, in Jack Merrill's case you know his boat caught fire. And he's out by Mount Desire rock he and he he you know he'll die waiting for the coast guard to get there. Not that the coast guard's not pretty quick, yeah. but uh, you know it's, a long it's, it's second you know yeah. he needs he needs minutes he he's he doesn't have an hour or half an hour he's got minutes, and so everybody depends on everybody else to you know to to you know to help each other out whether you even you know to a person you don't like or doesn't like you, you put that all aside if you know if someone's in a mess because it could be you.
2: Got to add into the coasty thing the cultural element. They're generally not from here, and again, uh, you know, it's hard enough to step on anybody's boat, even if you're another fisherman. And uh, fishermen all have different relationships too. Some of them like each other more than others, you know. And again, uh, you got your allies, and and so uh, there's a young fellow that knows he can call you up. That's a pretty good thing to have you in his back pocket.
3: Yep. Well, yeah. Well, he and uh, his but family let, and I go back a long ways. Let's put that call on hold for a minute because we have one from a, a listener to talk to good morning welcome to boat talk
0: hey am i there
3: yes you're on the air
0: yeah hey al johnny how you doing Hi, johnny uh well i heard you guys you're talking about uh, uh disasters and rescues at sea and and your guest there was from point pleasant new jersey and i remember a, uh, a long time ago before i was born about a, a major major rescue of this ship called the morrow castle ah. and i think you guys are familiar with it too possibly but it was a uh, it was a huge, huge uh, uh, ocean liner that caught it on fire off the Jersey coast there. And, and ships were, boats, head boats were coming out of uh, Point Pleasant like crazy to try and, and rescue the people. There was a couple hundred, I think, that were killed. But I was wondering if he ever got on the Paramount, which was one of the major boats down there before he had left. And I knew they had pictures of the rescue and everything.
5: I did not. I turned, my sixth birthday was in Vermont, so I wasn't, I oh. remember seeing all those and head boats and things like that and then going back and visiting friends. That, but, that,
3: that's over 60 years ago now, Johnny. Yeah,
0: 30, was
3: it, 1936? 50, 50s, I think. 52,
0: something yeah. like that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah you're, but,
2: showing, you're showing your roots there, so anyway.
3: Thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Right. Well, I was just checking in. Good so show. I, you're right, though. It's a good book. Uh, Fire at Sea is the name of the book.
0: Fire at Sea. Yes. Yes. Yep, and uh, yeah, very very interesting story and uh, mystery on board. Who who set the fire? And yeah, and And most of the rescues happened on uh, where I grew up down there in Spring Lake. So um, very timely. And in fact, the uh, I used to go play pool upstairs at the old uh, firehouse, and they had all the pictures where they. Had turned the uh, firehouse into a morgue while that was happening, and so uh, a little Mm. little bit of local history. But as as rescues goes for ships, that was that was the biggest one on the Jersey coast, and uh, yeah, that was a biggie. Enjoying the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for calling. Thank you, John. So uh, young Ronnie Musetti is uh, fishing lobsters.
5: He is he's he's out there, and we this fall was a very windy fall, yeah, a little
2: rough this fall, you know it
5: was just there was not a lot of opportunities, and there was a morning where it was it was rough, but it was and it was going to get rougher, but pretty much everybody went out
2: and um, you got to go out if you want to make a dollar today yep, and uh, so
5: Ronnie was out there and and uh he had he had trouble, he changed his filters, and he still had trouble and the more he worked on it the less the engine would run and so he sent me a text and i said i'd come get him and i didn't realize where you know where he was um it didn't really matter but uh i uh, i said sure so i came home grabbed uh i mean i've got a nice tow line um that i keep at the house so it doesn't disappear from the boat or get borrowed and uh, so i grabbed that and grabbed some stuff and i went out and i went out to get him and uh when i was leaving the marina another fisherman who had just come in and said you know it's getting really rough out there and his boat was much bigger than mine i have a 35 foot H, uh 35 foot rp and uh and his boat was a lot bigger than mine and he said and i said well yeah i know it's rough and it it's you know it was going to be rough but we're all familiar with with rough weather it's not you know it's not a deal breaker and so i uh he said do you need my you know you want me to come with you And I said, no, I'm all right. You know, I didn't, I didn't take it. I didn't take it that, I didn't, I mean, I took it seriously, but I wasn't that, it wasn't that rough. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I headed out and, um, when I went out through the Western way and got off a seawall, that's like the roughest place because the water comes in from open ocean and then there's a bar of
2: Mount Desert Island. So
5: it comes in and, you know, it goes from, you know, 130 feet to 20 feet Mm -hmm. or or 15 feet, depending on the tide. And so it, it was rough in there. And, um you know and it was pretty you know pretty crisp wind but uh but I got through that and then it wasn't so rough because I put the you know I put the hammer down and I was headed out towards him and but it was it was just an, uh, he was out by he said Duck Island Big Duck so I went to Big Duck uh, or I went towards Big Duck and but I couldn't keep the hammer down because every 30 seconds I'd hit one you know I'd hit a wave that would just you know really roll me so it really wasn't that rough it was just it wasn't it was too rough it was it was like inviting to you know to give it all get all the throttle to cruise out there, but I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. I couldn't do it. So I just slowed down. It wasn't like I ran into a you know through a hail of machine gun fire to rescue a puppy. I was just going out to tell a friend. It was rough, but it's not a big deal. But in the time it took me to do it, it never stopped getting rough. And so, uh, you know, a normal thirty minute jog to Duck Island was an hour and a half and when i got to the east side of duck island i rested for a minute and i thought wow i couldn't believe how how much it had picked up but so but you know you but you just in and out of gear and uh and 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 still it, it just kept getting worse and so i was trying to call ronnie but i wasn't having any luck with him on the radio and i he sent me a text you know saying to steer 150 out of you know he asked me where it was and i i was almost a mile east of the boathouse i expected to see him and i said you know it's a, he said where are you and i said i'm a mile east of the boathouse and he i said where are you and he said no, you know another four miles
3: four miles
5: and i thought and that's when i thought oh my goodness you gotta be kidding me
2: he's drifting
5: he's yeah he's drifting yeah. toward the wind was out of the south i mean the wind was out of the southwest and the tides going the opposite way that's what really it was just big tides big uh, you know completely opposition wind and tides and so the the waves, the waves got huge. Yeah, I've seen bigger waves out on Coast Guard cutters, but you know it's all relative to what you're what you're in.
2: We speak of you say it didn't matter where he was, but it does matter where he was. We speak of inside and outside on the coast of Maine. He was and outside. He was outside, unprotected water with an open fetch to yeah. the whole Gulf of Maine. There, uh, the the Duck Islands about halfway out to Frenchboro, Long Island.
5: Yep. And again, well, from what, depending on your what, what direction you go, yeah, or you halfway go. out to Mount Desert Rock and uh,
2: <laughs> straight south of MDI, and again uh, very exposed out there yeah
5: yeah so I but I just you know I was going up and going down and plugging along and but it was arduous and um but and it wasn't threatening it was you know it was big but it was and it was really uncomfortable but I was just plugging along and thinking how am I going to see and there was so much water there's so much water flying in the air that I had no visibility and I'm going up you know, a 12 foot wave and then back down it. So I'm in the trough and I can't see 20 feet. And, and, but, it, and then when I get to the top of one, there was just so much spray. I thought, how am I even going to, you know, how am I going to find him? So I asked him to put a spotlight on, but the spotlight had been hit with water. And so it had blown the spotlight. So I couldn't find him that way. And I just kept plugging along and I'm thinking, I'm trying to steer this compass course and thinking about how the tide's setting me and how the wind is setting me and, and just Thinking about boy, well, what are the? How am I going to find him? And and the next thing you know, he was right there. He, it was just you know I could see him. He was two hundred yards away, but that was the extent of the visibility. And um, it was almost like I'd been
2: doing it before. Hiding behind a hill of water.
5: He was, and so I you know I was poking along up to him, and still it's you know two thirty in the afternoon, still plenty of daylight. And I got within a hundred yards of him, and it's just you know going up these big steep waves and back down the other side of them and uh, putting it in and out of gear. And and then I just look up and there is a mountain of water which is, you know, four or five feet bigger than than the – 12-foot seas is big Mm. in a 35-foot boat. It's, it's big in a lot of boats, um, and even if it's not big, it's uncomfortable in a bigger boat. That's for but sure. it was it, it, you. It's funny how it's no di- even though they're twelve feet, it's no different than a six foot sea, which is uncomfortable. You still have to do the same things. So it's not like you're you've lost control of your car and you're hurtling across four lanes of traffic and you have no say in what you're doing. You're still doing the same things, and there's an air of familiarity to it. Whether it's even though it's uncomfortable. And but I looked up and I saw this uh, you know I saw this this wave that was huge and it was breaking it was going to break it was going to break on me, and um, and it's funny how you get in these situations where um, all of a sudden you you know you really realize that you're in a bad situation. You don't put your hands up and uh, but I t- yeah. you get time and space gets cramped and your your brain starts working overtime, but you start thinking of things and it was only been a couple weeks before that. Um, a guy in a 45-foot MDI, which is a big lobster boat, down off Matinicus, had capsized his boat and lost two of his crew, and they still haven't found his crew. And I had run an MDI 45 for somebody who had lost, got their finger caught in the hauler, and they needed my help, so I ran the boat to go haul up his traps in the winter. And uh, and I, I remember, compared to my boat, I couldn't believe what we were fishing in. You just needed a 20-foot gaff. It was like no seas were too big to work in this, in this thing. And uh, so when that happened... The capsize down in Matinicus, I thought, you know, how is that possible that you could capsize an MDI-45? When I saw that wave, that's what I thought, that's what popped into my head. As oh, I said, it just, it would be it was like time stopped. It lands
2: look, on your head and comes through your windshield, that's, that's which it. is no longer a windshield and fills up your boat.
5: And so I, I, I gave it a lot of throttle and give it, you know, turned hard to starboard to go into it. And I just, you know, s- contracted my body and squeezed my eyes tight and said, Please God, don't let the you know, don't let it blow out the windows. And um, I went through it, or it went through me, actually. And um, you know, it came down on the house, but uh, I, and suddenly I was on the back side of it, and I was just falling. It's just a long way, you know. It, it, the, what it does to a lobster boat, it feels like you're, you're like you're riding on a feather until you break out the other side, and then you're falling like a then you know like a, cliff, a fifteen thousand yeah. pound lobster boat. And, uh, and and I looked up and there was another one just like that and it was just like uh, even with that chaos going on it was just so clear in my mind I thought this is exactly this is what happened to him he didn't get squared to it took out his windows filled up his house filled you know then the boat becomes unstable mm-hmm. and um, you know so and that, it, it didn't scare me though it's just it was just it was uh, it, it's just I you know I look back and marvel at how your mind comes up with things like
2: that you were busy
5: I was that's and what thing.
2: were your other choices.
5: You don't have there. You was you, you know. don't have any yeah. other choices. You was Ronnie you. able
2: to see this? At the, at the
5: Ronnie table? said that's one of the things. Now we all because there's so much going on, everybody remembers different things about it. And Ronnie said, you know, that's what one of the things Ronnie remembers was saying. I saw that coming, and I saw you. T- all of a sudden, I saw you turn. You know, you turned ninety degrees, and then you disappeared. And and he said, I, that's when I thought, wow. But uh, but once I got when I got to him, you know, so I got through that, and then I was whew. It's just adrenaline. I mean, adrenaline is going in me now. Thinking mm. about it, um, I didn't feel scared, and not, that's you know that's no, you know, reflection on my bravery or personality because it, it wasn't. You just doing, you just going out there to take care of business, and uh, and and you're too busy. And yeah. you know, you have a familiarity, so you know what you have to do, regardless of what, you know, what's going on. You have to do it. You're, so you're busy. Your mind is so busy. I'm thinking, my mind is thinking about what am I going to do for the next five seconds? What am I going to do for the next 30 seconds? What am I going to do for the next five minutes? It's just like all doing that at the same time. So I, I got to Ronnie and um, I threw him a hammer. <laughs> I did, I thought, how am I going to get the toe line to him? I can't get close. Yeah. Enough.
2: Your problems are just starting.
5: Yeah. So I uh, take a, I get a piece of tail you know floating line that goes between two lobster traps on the bottom and I uh, I have lots of hammers on the boat because when I'm diving it, people drop hammers over all the time there's always hammers on the bottom and I can't <laughs> pass up a good hammer so I pick them up I've probably got you know 20 hammers on the boat of different states of <laughs> of, of uh, condition and I, so I tie that to it and I throw it over the hammer falls just short and Ronnie pick, you know I don't know how he did it but he grabs a gaff and he manages to gaff it out of the water like it was he doesn't even remember that but I I do I was marvelled at that he gets the we get the boat get the boats connected, and I I'm not we're not in line we're kind of 180 degrees out you know about astern, and so I jockey around I make them tend the the tow line so it doesn't get in my propeller, and uh, and then I try and take them in tow and it's there's not enough rope.
2: Could I point something out? It's not easy to tow a boat in a harbor on a calm day, basically.
5: Well, and we had no other boats around us, so that was easy.
2: Yeah, <laughs> um, towing towing a boat on a line is not as easy as anybody would hope, uh, you know. So, and again, um, we have a big sea running. Um, yeah, we're gonna have shock loads. So this this line's gonna be snapping uh, uh, taut and then uh, uh, slack, and and
5: that's exactly what happened. Yeah. There was not enough line. So I told Ronnie crew to add more line not to let go of the tow line not to start from scratch but to add more line from their end and so they did but still we had probably 100 feet of tow line not enough i took him in tow and once i got the boats you know both going the same direction um, and I was in gear, and a wave comes behind him, picks him up. I look up; it looks like you're looking up the top of a big sledding hill, and he is just coming down this face of this wave at me. And I'm thinking, surfing, yeah. And I'm thinking it's, he's going to barrel right into my boat. Yeah. And so I'm, I give it, I give it throttle to try and keep the lines, to keep the tow line tight because it's gone slack. And then the wave passes under him, and I'm looking at the face of a wave. I don't see Ronnie. All I can see is my tow line going into you know into this wave. And then when the wave grabbed me. It, it, it Like it, it, the, there was some slack in the tow line, and it the boat made a you know hellacious noise, sound, groan, you know of displeasure, <laughs> and you know where the sh- I didn't have enough tow line, so I didn't have enough to to absorb the shock, and it seemed like it just jerked the boat five feet, you know, my stern, it just you know jerked us in line, and and I thought, oh man, something's going to give, but I kept you know, so I was going in and out of gear and trying to do this and just trying to th- th- mull in my head how we're going to do this because we're alone, you know we're f- four miles out east of duck island and and uh and nothing you know it, the decision thankfully was made for me quickly when the tow line when we had another another part like that and it ripped ronnie's it didn't rip his towing post out but it ripped a bow cleat out and it parted the tow line and so that gave me pause to, you know, to gather my thoughts, and I looked and saw that it was three thirty, and, and and I said, you know, there's the,
3: it's going to be dark in an it's hour. It's going to be
5: dark. It's going to be dark in half an hour, mm-hmm. and I've got to do something. I've got to call this. My boat's not big enough. We don't have enough tow line. There's no getting out of this without calling the coast guard. So I did. I called the coast guard, and because um, Ronnie couldn't do it, he had, you know, he'd lost an antenna, and just from all the jarring around he'd done, he was doing some electronic work. He had two radios, but neither one of them worked. Was working that we you know it worked that day sufficiently, so yeah. So I used the used my radio and I called in the Coast Guard and and uh, they came right out. Butch took them an hour. I, the funny thing was, you know the the. the the search and rescue controller said, "You know, we'll they'll get underway." And said, "You know, get, he called me back and said it 'We'll be there in twenty minutes. ETA is twenty minutes.'" Nah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought, "No." Do I have that in writing. <laughs> so, well, by the time it got there, you know, it was pitch. It was dark. It was five o'clock. The thing that was uh, that mitigated it somewhat was that it, it, surprisingly, when when you don't apply power to the boats, either one of them, you know, the waves were big and we were running in every. 15 minutes, there'd be something really big. But left to their own devices, until you apply power and try and do something that the ocean doesn't want you to do, the boats just went up and down, up and down. Now, that's not to say it wasn't rough, but it was not threatening.
2: Mm Yeah. Wave comes, uh, boat goes up, wave goes by, boat goes down, and and you get comfortable after a little while. When I
5: was just about, when I almost got, when I got close to Ronnie, there was so much water. I'm looking through. I had the window cracked. And and I'm looking through it, but I'm you know, so I'm like looking through a tunnel, but there was so much water and it was so violent on the boat, going side to side and pitching and rolling, so snapping, it was so hard that it gave me vertigo. Not I've never been seasick. Again, that's no I mean you either do or you don't. Some mm. the God bless the people that get sick and just keep on soldiering on. But yeah. I, I I got sick from the top down. It wasn't it was just my head it was too much information I couldn't process at all.
2: Well, Andy, you've said something repeatedly as you've been telling this story, and and it's fun to watch it because it's winding you up just telling this. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's a little intense. Um, you kept saying, "But it's familiar." It's familiar. Now you're not you're doing familiar things. You're not out there experiencing things and learning for the first time.
5: No, and that's that's what people have to you know. It's that's it's it's not magic, and it's not it's familiar. So people who think of you know. You know, it may frighten them. You know, it may, We all have things that we're not familiar with that frighten us, and this is not one of the things that frightens people that are commercial fishermen.
2: Some people step up, some people uh, can, and some people can't. And it's you know, it's called the right stuff. You know. Yeah. Well, so, I couldn't, so well, that's why I called the Coast Guard. Yeah, but you had it and you were doing it, and, <laughs> and you were smart enough to do you that. Had it. The boat did. So the coasties come out uh, in a uh, launch, and uh, we we interviewed uh, Chief Winniarski from the uh, tug. Bridal uh, a couple months ago, but it uh, wasn't uh, Chief Winniearski. No, it was
5: uh, it was Calvin Lake. Petty Officer yeah. Calvin Lake was a coxswain of that f- beautiful forty-seven foot motor lifeboat. Yeah, and uh, and he had you know i've had a, a rocky relationship of late with the coast guard um but never with the you know with the crews and he this guy this young guy really you know he had the right stuff
2: um he also admits that that was the hairiest thing he'd ever done in his service in the coast guard
5: yep not that's not a, that's not surprising yep. now i think about uh, the different even though you know they're they're using vessel as designed for that it still was he he you know he had to go through hell to get to us because where I where Ronnie had gone out in the morning and now Ronnie's just basically been a you know the whole evolution for Ronnie was probably twelve hours, but it was mostly waiting for somebody else to do something for him me I managed to get out there because it wasn't horrible when I first started Calvin and the crew of and his crew were going into you know they had twelve to fifteen foot seas the whole time that they were going right into it so and it was dark when they did it so yeah. So and he, and you know, so he has got he's carrying the weight of his own crew and they're having their own difficulties. I think somebody from what I've heard, somebody fell, somebody hurt themselves on the boat and cut oh, themselves yeah. and had to go to the first aid kit. Um, so he had his own difficulties. And so, you know, he's got he's 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 responsible for his crew, for Ronnie, who's got in tow and for me, who's by myself, pitch black and, you know, and sees that are way too big for my boat and for my you know and for me and so he's when i spoke with him on the radio you could hear the. Uh, you, you couldn't hear much because they're out in the open on the flybridge bridge and that thing and it's blowing 45 gust to 50 and you know you, you mostly you could just hear the scream of the wind but you could hear the strain in his voice
2: what time do we get her into the dock
5: I got in. I was a little ahead of them, so I get in at nine o'clock, and they get in at ten o'clock. It's a long
2: day. A That's long, what we.
5: But yeah. it didn't seem like you know. I look back at that. It's. It was ten. You know. It was nine. It was like a full day of work. It didn't feel like that to me. But yeah. I came home and I said, "I'm going to have nightmares and I'm going to have charlie horses because I had put." Uh, I was wearing a life jacket. I'm not uncomfortable. You know, I, I, a lot of guys don't wear life jackets mm. for discom- for whatever reasons i 've never been uncomfortable in a life jacket. I wore one all the time I worked on you know when I was on a cutter in the coast guard and I, so they 're familiar to me and I look at the you know the pragmatic nuts and bolts of if you get washed overboard, it can save your life yeah. if it doesn 't save your life it it will it will help people find your body so i mean that 's just a, i don't you don 't it 's part of the reality. I think some people don 't like to you don 't like to put survival suits on and things because it also makes you admit admit that you're in that you're in peril and you don't want to face that you just want to keep working but um, yeah. i did that you know i mean i had a, a underwater a dive light that i have that i has a tight lanyard and i put that on my wrist i you know i thought that was a, a you know clear possibility that I might get thrown out of my boat so i i have a split wheelhouse which means i have like a cabin and then a, the outside so i have two steering stations i didn't go inside because i thought I wasn't comfortable inside. I couldn't see well enough, and and I thought if the boat or overturns, I might have trouble getting out of here. And if, if I was on the outside, I, uh, I, but I, I really, I, squ- I squatted down and wedged my feet against the bulkhead on my left, and and the hull on my right, and I was in a squat for well for probably four hours Ooh. after two hours i thought i just remember thinking how long can i mm. keep this mm. well the answer is a long time i didn't you couldn't do it i couldn't do it for 20 minutes standing you know standing here doing nothing but you know in that case i did do it
2: mm. we are doing boat talk this morning and unfortunately a, coming up to the end of it here uh mike joyce alan sprague the host with uh uh andy Mazin this morning talking about uh fishermen helping out uh each other at sea there When um, I read uh, Ronnie Musetti, uh, I thought, oh, Musetti's, I've heard that name before. And uh, um, is he in relation to the captain of the tug, Harkness? Yes, he is, yep. Has to be, MDI. Ronnie
5: Ronnie is named after his grandfather, Ron, who I worked with when I first came in the Coast Guard. Ronnie was a civilian worker. And Ronnie's brother is Rudy, who was the captain of the Harkness.
2: Harkness was a uh, construction tugboat. It was coming down east in uh, January of, I think it was 1990. They were off of Matinicus Island at night, and it was blowing. It was below freezing, and all of a sudden they are getting water in that boat, and uh, so they get on the radio. Of course, nobody's out there on the water. They didn't know Matinicus had people on it, let alone they had people that had um, VHF radios in the kitchen listening to it like truckers on a CB, okay? And they put out a Mayday call. They were heard by Vance Bunker on the island there, lobsterman. And uh, Vance says, look, steer this way. We'll get in the lobster boat and come out to you. It's January night. It is cold. It's blowing. Sea smoke. Sea smoke. I mean, you know. Mm. So Vance knows generally what direction they're in. he heads out of the, uh, of the harbor and points his boat, can't see a damn thing. There's nothing on the radar because the tugboat sank.
5: Tugboat got tripped up in its tow line yep. and uh, sank.
2: Yep. And three men are now in the water. And have really no hope for survival at all. One of them got a flashlight for Christmas and has taped it to his hand. One minute. Yeah. And uh, Vance saw the light, uh, picked this fellow up, found his two friends, dragged him into the wharf. Um, Crash Berry was a stern man, a Portland writer at the time, uh, jumped into a sleeping bag in his tidy whities with one fella.
5: Oh, I didn't know that was Crash Aunt Berry.
2: And warmed, to- warmed him up, took him over to Vance's house, uh, fed him lobster stew and a whiskey and got, you know, yeah, And uh, they were lucky they lived. But related.
5: Rudy's. Rudy, what impressed me about that was Rudy was a captain. Rudy was the captain of that. And he said that when, it, you know, when they were in the water, he realized that they were all going to die. And he was really upset because the one guy was not a sailor and he just came along for the ride. And that was the guy that had the flashlight. Yeah. Which saved them. Ended up saving them. Small
2: mm-hmm. coast. Uh, you know, watch it on the water. Uh, you get it handed to you anytime. Uh, boat talk. Boy, we had a good time doing it this morning. Sorry, Sailed right by again, hour. didn't it? Yeah.
5: Now oh, hopefully my adrenaline will calm down. I, I, I don't know why. I mean, it's oh, still you there. wound up just doing the radio, <laughs> let alone
2: talking about this stuff. Thanks, Andy May, for coming in this morning. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to John Greenman for uh,
3: engineering down in the engineer room. Stay tuned for Rich Hillsinger coming up next with On the Wink here on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and on the Internet at WERU.org.
1: Support for WERU comes from Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for 30 years near the harbor in Camden, gambleandhunter.net. Support for WERU also comes from Allen Insurance and Financial of Camden helping to insure Maine boats and their people since 1866. An employee-owned company, alleninsuranceandfinancial.com or 800-439-4311.
4: Here at WERU, radio isn't just something that people passively listen to, it's something that our community fully participates in creating. We know that our listeners have things to say, and we're dedicated to offering a forum for that with the Community Soapbox. Call in, take your turn, and turn your phone into a microphone. Let the community